Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Welcome to our podcast today, Civil Rights in a Hostile World. I'm Karina Robinson from the LSE's The Inclusion Initiative, an institute dedicated to increasing diversity and inclusion at work through data and behavioral science. Our guests today are two individuals who are not afraid to raise their heads above the parapet. Sir Trevor Phillips and Ian Anderson. Let me keep their introductions as short as one can given their distinguished careers. Trevor is a well-known anti-racism campaigner, writer, TV producer, co-founder of Weber Phillips, Times columnist, and chairman of the global freedom of expression campaign charity Index on Censorship, senior fellow at the Policy Exchange Think Tank and founding chair of the Equality and Human Rights Commission. Ian Anderson is a well-known LGBT plus campaigner, has over 25 years experience in communications, co-founder and executive chairman at Cicero Group, NED at Innovate Finance. In September 2021, he was appointed by the UK government LGBT plus business champion, a role from which he resigned not that much later, and we're going to be talking about that. He's also the incoming chair of Stonewall. Now, what are we going to be talking about? The rolling back of individual rights from Roe versus Wade to the cancellation of the UK's Safe to Be Me subit, what the US midterms mean for protected groups, and we've had some very surprising results from the US, to a billionaire's takeover of the world's town hall. Now, Trevor, will you start us off a few minutes on how you see the world at this time? Good afternoon. Thank you very much for that um, that simple challenge. Would you describe the state of the world in 90 seconds, please? Um, the I think that the simplest way to describe the way I see this is that um, when I used to be in proper journalism rather than way the hobby journalism I do now at Times and at Sky News, I used to say that there'd be two big challenges for the world in the 21st century. One would be how we lived with the planet. Uh, the other is how we live with each other. Actually, what I've learned in the last 20 years uh, is that those challenges, though they look separate and to some extent often are separate, they are very much interlinked. And we're seeing at COP right now, for example, uh, in Egypt, the argument that's taking place between what I guess I'd describe as the West and the rest, which is about who has the greater responsibility right now for taking steps to reach net zero. Of course, it is reasonable for uh, much of the West to say that everybody has responsibility here, and China and India in particular, uh, who are huge emitters of uh, greenhouse gases. But on the other hand, it's also reasonable for developing nations to say, look, you lot, you had two centuries of despoiling the planet, and uh, now you come to us uh, after two centuries of telling us what we can't, can cannot do, and say that now we've got our foot on the bottom rung of the development ladder, we're not allowed to do what you did 
which is to take our people out of poverty to create development, to innovate, and so on, the way you, that, that you did. Um, so these two things are very much interlinked. So I say how we live with our planet and how we live with each other. But I guess much of our session today is really about the latter. And I think there's three things that I would look at when I worry about these issues of diversity and inclusion, how we manage relations between humans and groups of humans. First of all, we're going through a massive revolution what people talk about as the fourth industrial revolution, the digital uh, revolution, where all sorts of things are, are changing. My, I think about this really in the same way as uh, coming of the railways two centuries ago, when at the time nobody really understood what was going to happen. You know, for many years they thought, oh, well, this is just going to help us move livestock from one part of the world country to another. Nobody imagined that railways would completely reshape our physical geography, uh, actually reshape our clocks even. Small things huge and huge things that changed our culture. I think we're still in the foothills of understanding what digital tech will do to us. But very practically in the next year or two, uh, one of the things that uh, I did uh, in recent times was to be president of a, a big retailer in the UK, John Lewis, and one of the things that's absolutely clear for anybody who's in retail is that the four or five million people who work in that industry right now, in the next half a decade, we're probably going to lose a million of those. Those job losses will not be distributed evenly across the population. Women, 75% of, of the 80,000 or so people who work at uh, John Lewis and Waitrose, female, women will be less likely to be employed. Ditto logistics, or oh, sorry, not logistics, but transport, where that industry is something like 80 or 90% male, but it's going to lose, again, the best part of a million jobs in the next uh, half decade. My point here, and it, amongst those men, by the way, ethnic minorities are disproportionately represented. My point here is digital technology will have an asymmetric impact. The second big thing will dem be demographics at home and abroad. We all know we're an aging society. 85 uh, the, num of, uh, the proportion of our population who are over 85, uh, and that, by the way, will include people like me, um, will double in the next couple of decades. And that's going to change all sorts of things about our society. But alongside that, we see the population explosion in the Middle East and Africa. And, you know, we can have political arguments about the nature of migration and whether the current home office is doing its job well or not. But the overall, the big picture is that is not going to be stopped. The two things go together. We're an aging population that will need young workers and they will turn up here and they will be different. And we will need as a society to understand those differences. There's a third big thing, which is China, but I don't want to spend any time on that. But lastly, I just want to make one big point about uh, something that we, um, in our work, and when I say we in this case, I, I'm talking partly about the, the data analytics company I set up at WebPhilip, but also the recruitment company that I chair, Green Park, where we, we put four or 500 people a year in top jobs, boards, board minus one, board minus two. Uh, and we spend a lot of time thinking about the labor market. Everybody knows that the 
UK labour market is only going to become tighter in the next decade. It will be solved, uh, the problems that we face will be solved to some extent by greater migration. And, uh, you know, though there's a lot of noise about this, the truth is, again, everybody knows what's going to happen. What we are not is prepared for it, because those who come to join us will have different ways of looking at the world. They will require different things in the workplace. Uh, This is a very big, big issue. It is probably the single biggest issue for most businesses who are limited in their growth by the ability to recruit staff. But they will only recruit staff uh, preferentially to, let's say, France or Germany if we can demonstrate that we are a welcoming home. And that means that means some very practical things which I think will create substantial frictions in our society. But that's not just a matter of employment. We're seeing uh, the potential for friction between different cultures and different nations. And if I just mention two issues very much in the headlines right now, let us not kid ourselves. We have a view, which is a mainstream view, one I agree with, about the position of LGBTQ people, which essentially tells us that what we are going to be confronted with in Qatar during the World Cup is not nice. It's not good. It's not really where we should be. But let's not kid ourselves. Most Qataris are probably on the other side of this. Uh, There are actually clearly uh, differences of views. I've simply, secondly, I've I've worked uh, as chair of Index on Censorship to publish work by um, uh, Russian authors and Ukrainian authors, given the situation there, uh, which are, in the Russian case, forbidden works, suppressed works. And I think we need to be clear here too, though most of us in this country have a similar view about supporting Ukraine. I'm myself absolutely 100% committed, but we should not kid ourselves. Uh, 75 to 80% of Russians think that Putin is right. The reason I'm making these points is going back to my first point, which is the live, living with each other is not going to become simpler. And we are not going to solve it simply by sloganizing. We are in a world where there is a conflict about the way that we should live, what is fair, how we live with each other. And that's why the issues of diversity, the issues of inclusion are really huge ones and really, really more significant than I think we sometimes give them credit for. Thank you, Trevor, uh, for that tour de force. And um, definitely right, diversity inclusion is not just, you know, a little thing that lives in an office at the end of the corridor. It's crucial to our society and to our companies and to how we will uh, we will run our societies. Now, Ian, could we have your view of the state of the world? Thank you, uh, Karina. And, and li- listening to Trevor there, um, normally I would be sitting in London, but um, uh, today I'm actually sitting in Washington, D.C. And um, I think, as you were saying, uh, up front uh, in, into this conversation, sitting in the aftermath of uh, a somewhat unexpected result to these U.S. midterm elections, uh, um, a set of results so far, and of course, given the American electoral process, we're still to see what the eventual um, outcome uh, looks like. 
But on the um, on the turf that's perhaps most relevant for today, in terms of civil rights, in terms of social progress, um, I, I'm kind of reminded of something that um, you know Barack Obama uh, once said, which you know is America makes progress, but it doesn't necessarily do so um, in a, in a straight line. Yeah, and a lot of people had kind of dismissed whether or not uh, some of those polls on the Roe v. Wade question uh, would have any impact whatsoever uh, on these uh, midterms. And last night I spent a bit of time both with uh, Republican uh, and Democratic um, uh, strategists here in D.C., and both um, the Republicans a little bit more privately, the Democrats a little bit more uh, noisily, said that actually what has happened in, in several states is that the debate around social progress, the debate around an issue um, that, um, such as Roe v. Wade, has layered all the way um, over the, these elections. It's held back uh, in many states the prospect of a red wave and the concept of a red a ripple um, is there. What is what is also done here is it's rather mixed up and mashed out, mashed up the inevitability of Trump in 2024. He now has a real challenger in DeSantis. Of course, he has a real challenger in DeSantis uh, playing very, very, very similar notes about a woke war, quote, unquote, if we can we can all debate what a woke war um, looks like uh, for many of us. But for me, um, I'm actually in a lot of agreement with Trevor um, around the impact of digital in this conversation. And my, my day job, uh, beyond being the incoming chair of, of Stonewall and uh, uh, the, the work I do, uh, with the university sector as well. But my, my day job is running a communications business, um, Cicero. And we constantly grope around, and I've used that term deliberately, as to what is an effective digital communication strategy for organisations, public and private. And when people say they have a digital strategy, um, they portrayed to be terribly confident about what that approach is. Um, I think that's all uh, completely um, illusory uh, because uh, the conversation that is um, ongoing right now is not actually a conversation a lot of the time. It's a shouting match. Uh, people are screaming at each other in these social spaces. Um, again, as part of our conversation and the run-up to our conversation, I'm thinking a lot, I think many of us are, about what will Elon Musk's next move be with the probably the biggest social square in terms of a lot of our conversation, um, uh, public policy conversation at least, not the, the wider um, uh, interpersonal conversation, and that is what does he do next with Twitter? There are some people who are already cancelling themselves off Twitter before they've worked out exactly what he's going to do with Twitter, before he's worked out himself what he's going to do with Twitter. So for me, we've got to think as human beings about ways to try and have a conversation again. 
and not a screaming and a shouting match. Uh, because all we've got right now is noise and fury, and noise and fury from either elites or the kind of people that when I was a full-time journalist, you used to call the Green Ink Brigade. Now, some of you listening in might know what I mean when I talk about the Green Ink Brigade. When I was a, a cub reporter, a uh, editor used to say to me, um, and this is well before the days of digital, um, um, you're going to get lots of green ink on that one, Ian. And I used to say, what on earth do you mean? And he said, well, um, you're going to have a lot of crazy people who are going to write to you. And do you know what I do with it? I take it and I put it straight in the bin. The problem with the square, the public square at the minute, is people are not putting it in the bin. They're responding to it. They're baited by it. They're, and the whole thing, if you watch some of this, just gets more and more crazy. So, look, the first, first thing for me is that we need to try and find ways and think about ways and focus on ways to have a more respectful conversation in this digital era. The second thing for me is that too often the conversation about diversity and inclusion does not include a wider conversation about social mobility. Yeah. So when I was, briefly, as you kindly uh, reminded me, um, having my adventure, and I think that's the best way of putting it, of working with government as the first ever UK LGBT business champion, I deliberately sought out sectors of the economy where this conversation about um, allowing people to be themselves at work, whoever they are, whoever they are, um, doesn't normally take place. Yeah, so, you know, there's a very comfortable um, conversation uh, for a, a, a lot of people who live in zone one of our metropolitan centres. But is it going on with oil and gas? Is it going on with automotive? Is it going on actually in parts of retail that are not the sort of high-end luxury parts of retail? So what I wanted to try and do was, was to start that conversation in a way and think about policies and think about progress in a way that for me is about meaningful social progress so that people in all parts of society up and down geographically up and down in terms of the social spectrum can see that progress is actually taking place as opposed to this kind of rather rarefied um, uh, conversation about people that's taking place or what people should be thinking about people. We need to include people in that um, at, at all levels in that conversation. And I don't think that's necessarily happening. But my final point, and this is the sort of reason for hope uh, for, for me is not, not just again, the sort of um, sat here in America and in the immediate aftermath of, of, of these midterms um, that, you know, if you look in, Kansas, you look in Kentucky, you look in Michigan, you look in North Carolina, you look in Pennsylvania, um, a lot of people have voted for continued social progress. Um, and that gives me reason for hope. Uh, when I resigned as LGBT business champion, a lot of businesses, large and small, said, you know, actually, we think you're doing the right thing by stepping back, 
and we want to try and support you. And I actually think an awful lot of businesses, large and small, are way, way ahead of policymakers because they're ignoring the noise. And the final point is looking at the numbers. Um, there's a, a very interesting think tank in the UK uh, called More in Common. Um, I'm sure many online are um, aware of the work of Luke Tyrrell and, and his team. And when it comes to the, the thing that I'm most known for, I think, in this public square, and that is LGBTQ um, Q rights, um, 83, 84% of people are in a live and let live, let's see progress, do no harm, be respectful, let's see opportunity place. Um, now, that does mean, of course, 17% of people are not um, although I actually don't think it's 70%. I think it's maybe closer than, to 10, uh, 12% of uh, any population. But that 10, 12% in this digital world are noisier than they've ever been. And they're skewing the ability for us to come together. But Ian, that makes absolute sense because the moderates are never going to be on the streets. The moderates are never going to be trolling people. So, I mean, as you say, you you talked about Elon Musk and he posits, he always says free speech versus political correctness. Well, it seems to me and Trevor, just give me an idea about this. You know, how do we balance that need for free speech while avoiding racism, homophobia, misogyny and hate? Because I'm not sure there is a solution to this. And we will continue to amplify those extreme voices. And this is an, you know, an obvious thing to say, which I know you know, and probably most people on this call know, Twitter's not really the world. I mean, it, it, you know, we just need to step back and grasp that, uh, that, particular, that particular platform, but it's true about other platforms. Uh, I mean, they like going to the theater. It's not where most people live. It tells you some interesting things, as sometimes going to the theatre or cinema does, but getting wound up about it as though it's real is, I think, wrong. And by the way, that's not to say it doesn't matter or it doesn't, doesn't have significance. You know, uh, the people who have been to see great movies that, for example, I'm just off the top of my head, for many people for whom um, the uh, Second World War is really quite ancient history and the Nazis are a bit of a kind of um, dressing up villain joke. If you, if you went to see, I don't know, Cabaret or Schindler's List, these things will have changed your thinking about the world. Now, none of that, but none of that means this is the true picture. So first point about all of that, I think we need to be a bit careful about uh, sort of inhabiting the world, this uh, the world of Twitter as though, frankly, it matters more than it does. The second thing is, um, I am, to be frank, um, and I'm sure this will come up in some of the other things we'll talk about, um, a freedom of speech absolutist, which doesn't mean entirely that I think anybody can say anything they like, 
the distinction I think I tend to make is that somebody may stand on the other side of the street and call me names. They may call me the N-word and so on. And in my book, that's lawful. It's not fine, but in my book, from my family's point of view, that tells me more about them than it tells me anything to do with me. And as far as I'm concerned, they have the right to do that. Uh, and in some ways, as a, as a black person, to be honest, I would rather know what somebody really thinks of me than have them smile but call me the N-word in their heads. But I think that the, um, the issue here, so that what I'm really saying is that I'm not sure I think there is a balance of rights. Uh, there is a first right, which is the right for people to think what they want to think and to say what they want to say. What they can't do is stand on the other side of the road and say to their friends, let's go and get the N word, because that's a different thing. That's a call to action. But frankly, in the end, we just have to live with the fact that people think what they think, they say what they say, and what we can do practically, for example, with our children, is help to give them resilience. And I will simply say, I come from a very big family, I'm the 10th of 10 children, and therefore we are a big tribe, which most of which, by the way, lives in North America now, uh, a lot of, but we give all our children very early on the, what we would call the talk about what it's like to be black, what you have to deal with, what's important about it and what is not important about it. And much, a big part of that talk is to remind them that what is important about their lives is not what somebody who hates them because they're a bit bonkers thinks. What matters is what they think about themselves, what those who are close to them and love them think about them and what they do with their lives. Thank you, Trevor. Very interesting because actually I think very few people would say what you have just said, which is absolutely fascinating. I want to move, Ian, to... To Wait, can, I, can I, can I, can oh, I just, yes, absolutely. Just br briefly pick up on yeah. that. That, that um, and if we did, I would be uh, an awful lot more comfortable uh, with um, the ability to have some of these robust conversations. Uh, yeah, and and I, I think the problem at the minute, and this is this is this is back to some of the, the you know the obsessing about uh, uh, Twitter stuff. It is that a lot of the conversation is now being tipped from being robust into sometimes moving into a hateful and sometimes then a more um, personally violent uh, place. So I, I actually think that we need we, we need an awful lot more in curricula. We need an awful lot more in terms of what we do to support young people to make them more resilient. And how does the geopolitical rise of China fit into this? Because it used to be America, whatever its faults, Statue of Liberty, free speech, pluralistic. But we now have the geopolitical rise of China affecting civil rights, a country that subsumes individual rights to what the state thinks best, sells its monitoring machines to regimes that use it to suppress dissent. It's a different model, and people are going to have to choose between the US and China. 
And um, one thing Trevor pointed out that was very interesting, which is, you know, sort of living here in London, you see, of course, you'd support Ukraine because the Russians invaded. But actually, most of the rest of the world, over around 70%, I think you said, is not supporting those sanctions, does not see it in the same way. So there are other models now. Ian? Yeah, there are. And, you know, I, I think sort of, we in the West, if I can put it that way, um, have to reflect back on the last 20, 30 years. So I absolutely was, 20 years ago, one of those that would say the more engagement, the more opportunity, the more dialogue uh, we have, uh, the more China will see. Um, got that wrong. Now, got that wrong partly because of what China gets to see. You know, I mean, we're not engaging with the democracy. Uh, we're certainly not engaging with the liberal democracy. Um, we're engaging with a very controlling system. I mean, part, part of the reason why, um, you know, you've got, you have got 75% of people, 75% of people in Russia that think that Putin's right about Ukraine is because they can't see anything different. You know, um, I'm, you know, a hundred years ago, in a different way, in a different place, but without digital, exactly the same techniques were used. You can't have a conversation if you can't see what's actually going on or different perspectives or different uh, uh, points um, of, of view. So, you know, it, it's it's actually very difficult, but I, I think that in a way, um, and that this takes me back to the, the day job, some of our best interlocutors right now uh, potentially um, might be uh, business and might be uh, the, the, the private sector. Um, where government interlocutors are rather stuck in a um, east versus west, to use an old analogy, but but certainly stuck in a um, you know we're liberal democracies and you're not. Um, the corporate sector and the business sector, which is where I hang out most of the time, can can actually continue a dialogue and decide where to invest. Yeah, so. Um, you know, let, let me take let me take the example of um, uh, what's happened recently in, in Singapore. Yeah. Um, now, so I'm not in any way comparing Singapore to China, yeah. but on LGBTQ rights, um, for many years, uh, it's absolutely not been safe to be me um, in Singapore to be. Um, to be able to be yourself. And a lot of Western businesses became increasingly clear with the Singaporean government that unless they changed some of their laws, uh, they were going to vote with their feet and start to locate and invest elsewhere. Um, you are seeing similar sorts of noises from some major brands now, not not those that are directly associated with uh, the World Cup, but um, around some of the debates, people are asking me, 
businesses are asking me what what should they do about Qatar. People haven't asked me that. They, people have never asked me that before. So I, I think I think there's a window into this uh, in a way. But no, I mean, have we got have we got our approach right to this um, in the past 20, 30 years? Um, uh, as have governments got their approach right to this? Well, evidently not. But Ian, I I would. I would respectfully, that's the new word, respectfully, disagree, <laughs> because it seems to me Singapore has benefited hugely from what China has been doing in Hong Kong, and that's been more important for investment than anything else. And the other thing is, in the US, we've seen this backlash against companies that have been involved in civil rights, in helping their employees, whether it's an abortion or whether it's ESG investing. And there's been a backlash against them. So, and a number of people saying, what are you companies doing getting involved in what we see as a non-business aspect? So actually, Trevor, would you pick up that, that view as to are things changing in the corporate sector? Or actually, are we, are we going back to business, stick to business? Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ ask social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question. Like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. No, I, th- I, I, I mean, I agree with Ian uh, quite a bit on this. I, I think that the, um, the norms in the corporate sector are changing. And partly because you've got a different generation of, uh, of business. It. Uh, it is also, by the way, worth saying, we may come back to this, that um, within most big corporates, there is, if you like, a kind of cultural battle going on. Uh, and I'm going to put this in the most crass way, uh, crude way, possibly, about who's really in charge. Um, are the grown-ups in charge or are the kids in charge? And this comes out uh, rather forcibly on questions to do with sex, uh, sexual, sexual identity and so on. And also, for example, how one approached uh, Black Lives Matter uh, and all of that. So I think that there is a sort of change of sentiment within the corporate sector. However, however, having said all of that, um, in the end, you know, uh, you know I, I chair a couple of companies and our business... Uh, you know, we're fortunate that we have um, uh, shareholders who uh, go with our our mission. That's largely because that's us. Um, and we, we are mission driven. So uh, nobody t- tells us what to do. But, you know, if we were to trade, let's say, in China, we would have to deal with the reality. I, I've got a great friend who is a was a religion, a minister of religion in Jamaica. His son went, his journalist went on a trip to Shanghai, came back enthusing about what the Chinese are doing. His father said, yeah, they are building, you know, these great new cities and all that, and shiny and glass, and they're lifting people out of poverty, but they can't practice their religion. And the son said, yeah, you know what? It would be good if that people have the roof over their heads, and we can then we can teach them to pray. And China, which is spending, I think, six hundred, four hundred billion uh, a year on Belt and Road Initiative, 
is buying friends across the world who say, yeah, we, we understand that President Xi is doing, is creating a state which is the antithesis of a democratic state. But you know what? He's feeding his people. So I think, Karina, the point you made is an extremely strong one that in the, 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 the I don't use this word lightly, the struggle across the globe today, the struggle of ideas is probably the most important one. And I would say, if I'm honest, that we are on in the West losing that struggle of ideas because we look a bit chaotic. Uh, our leaders are a bit gerontocratic or uh, get chucked out every 10 minutes. And most of all, um, there is a sense in which we, our class, the political class, tends to spend a lot of time explaining to itself and to everybody else what a bunch of racist, big imperialist bigots we are. Um, and then we wonder why Putin and Xi uh, and their people view us with contempt. Well, good reason, because we're telling them that we're not worth much. Actually, let me pick up on that because... You know, to inject a note of positivity here. I mean, I think the UK is in a reasonably good position. We have a diverse cabinet, a British born Asian as prime minister. And Trevor Noah, the comedian, did some ridiculous show saying there had been a backlash against him. Well, there hadn't been a backlash against him. And that is exactly what I felt so proud um, that there wasn't. And yes, there are conversations, but the conversations, because, for example, one of the conversations that is quite bothersome is around slavery and colonialism. I mean, surely, Ian, there is a sensible, inclusive way of dealing with it and stopping it from being all the noise in the room. There is. There is. Sorry, sorry. I mean, briefly back to the Trevor Noah point. I mean, look, this is clickbait. It's kind of, you know, the way the New York Times as well wants to describe the UK, it's clickbait. It's all it's doing. I mean, let, let's be absolutely honest. It's about the money. Let, it's no more complicated than that. It's just about adding people that are going to read that stuff or view that show. It's no more complicated. But on, on the, on the um, it's a business model. On, on the point about interpreting and understanding our, our history. I, I am absolutely not into pulling things down. I am not into pulling things down. I'm into contextualizing them. Yeah. So um, while I've been in Washington, well, I came in um, uh, at the weekend and uh, the, the, the first thing I did, because um, I'd not seen it before, it's, it's pretty new. Uh, some on the call may have may have been when they've been in the States. But I went to the Smithsonian, I think the newest part of the Smithsonian, which is the America, American Black History and Culture uh, Museum, because I wanted to kind of find out about stuff. And you find out what and all. You find out about the struggle for civil rights, but you also find out about the enormous contribution to American sport to American history, to American literature, uh, to America, to America, um, and 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 for me, um, you know, there's a as a Scott, there's a huge amount of um, a as we would say in Scotland, about what to do about Henry Dundas, a very famous um, Scottish British uh, politician, very big uh, monument classic Georgian monument in the middle of 
at Edinburgh. And of course, everyone's piled in. Pull it down, build it higher. For me, keep it up there, but contextualize it. Contextualize it. Give people some more history. Give people some more understanding. Create some more dialogue. Don't put this stuff in the bin. It happened. We can't uninvent it. So um, for me, that's the way you, you, you deal with this. You don't ignore the elephant. You, you label the elephant. You, you walk towards the elephant, however tall or small it is. Trevor, I mean, do you agree? Is that, is a way, is that a way I, forward? I will not waste your time by uh, repeating what Ian said. I couldn't put it uh, any more eloquently. I completely agree. By the way, um, you will know Jeff Palmer, who is, yeah. uh, in, is, is an old family friend of ours. Uh, and I just always said what the approach that you've set out uh, is exactly the right one. Um, and just very quickly on the Trevor Noah thing. It, it's right to say, you're right, it's clickbait and all that. But here's the important thing in my mind. The Trevor Noah audience laughed. He knew who his audience was. And that audience is, uh, put it bluntly, a white, liberal, well-off, graduate, influential American audience, which likes the narrative of Britain being a bit backward, a bit quaint, certainly quite racist. And we know, you know, the royal story that has been playing in, out in California has been for that class. It doesn't correspond to anything that anybody in this country really experiences. So my, it comes back to my point earlier on that there is an issue about um, the way we allow ourselves to be portrayed. And I think your point, Karina, which is uh, about essentially uh, us, our image being used as part of a more global battle about, about our values. And it, you know, to throw one other point in, you know, we see what's happening in Iran. It's, it's so evident what those incredibly courageous and inventive women are doing but they are faced with the might of a government machine, not just military and policing, but ideological, which essentially is telling Iranian people uh, a story which a lot of Iranian people would like to believe, which is that these young women are allied with West, the West. And you know what happens in the West? We, are, we allow our daughters to do things like choose their own husbands, that's, a, in their eyes, a decadent society. Um, and I completely agree that there is an issue about the kind of information that is available to people in those countries. But I don't think, in the end, that's the only point here, or even the most important point. I think the real point is that there is an argument coming about what is the right and the best way for human beings to live and we have to demonstrate that the way that we want to live, which is a liberal democracy, open-minded, is better and delivers better res human results than what is happening, for example, in China. 
I mean, I would love to actually, we should stop the broadcast there because that was a lovely, lovely last lines, Trevor, really good. However, there is one issue I want to do before we go to questions. And it's one that it's really divided people and it's trans rights. And again, an issue that shouldn't divide people. Can we not have a conversation about this rather than a shouting match and ostracizing people and canceling, canceling them? Ian? Yeah, I, I, I mean, th- th- this for me is, again, where the, the megaphone has just gone uh, just off the dial. It's just, I, again, many on this call will, will remember, as sadly passed now, um, uh, quite an iconic figure in British uh, late, la- latter 20th century life, uh, Jan Morris. I don't know if anybody remembers Jan Morris, but... So there, there was Jan, a explorer um, who went off um, to, to Everest, I think, with uh, Edmund Hillary, who then transitioned, um, became an incredibly successful writer um, and broadcaster. And as I was growing up, as I was growing up in the backdrop of Section 28 in the UK, that was a piece of legislation which... Um, actually is the reason why Stonewall was born, in order to campaign against that piece of legislation, which didn't allow teachers to actually allow people back to where we were earlier, build personal resilience by understanding uh, and educating how they could be themselves um, as an LGBTQ uh, uh, person. Um, but everybody I knew, uh, the entire national discourse was very comfortable and very relaxed and very accepting and very celebrating of Jan Morris. And, and you know, I, I think sadly what's gone on here and what is going on here is, is layered through our conversation, which is, you know, extremes on either end of uh, this have, have latched on to the trans issue in, in order to... Um, to, to try and either push back against uh, LGBTQ rights or push back in 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 another direction and and uh, you know it's the it's part of the reason why I stepped back from that role you mentioned earlier um, uh, Karina because um, the UK government decided that it would not do what it said it was going to do which is the reason I took the job um, uh, to be the first ever LGBTQ business champion by taking the T off LGBT um, uh, on the commitment that the government has made around banning conversion therapy in in the UK. And it was very clear to me why, because they thought there was some polling that demonstrated that you could create a wedge issue here because... Uh, as again, we've seen in the United States and you see uh, some of the stuff that comes out of Ron DeSantis, you know, this is regarded as good politics. Well, I, it's not good politics, um, but all the polling demonstrates that it's overwhelmingly uh, bad uh, politics. Um, and it's, you know, it's about debating people's lives rather than making people's uh, lives better. So, no, I mean... Um, Something has gone badly wrong here. It's part of the reason why I've taken up. Um, I'm not in the Stonewall chair yet. I'm in the Stonewall chair um, later this month uh, formally. And I want to 
try and change the nature of all of this, um, uh, uh, all of this shouting match? Um, I think we're, we've got an amazing question, which I think, um, given how little time we have, I'm going to put to both of you. Alex Smith, LSE student from Newcastle. What do you think would be the one change of policy which would have the biggest impact? What do you think would be the one change of policy which would have the biggest impact? Trevor, would you take that first? Uh, well, I, I wonder if you could just uh, maybe infer biggest impact on what? <laughs> <laughs> um, since he's not, um, he's just online. I think you're going to have to assume biggest impact on what? Keeping our society pluralistic, keeping the world pluralistic. Okay. Take well, it anywhere uh, you want. Okay, well, I would say that, first of all, can I just say how incredibly um, delighted I am to hear the tone in which Ian answered your last question? Because it's a complete contrast to, I think, a lot of what's been said and the way it's been said from all quarters um, in the last couple of years, where you know, people say things like no debate and all of that. It's just toxic. Now, it may be that Ian and I might not agree uh, about the, the question or even what the central question is, but I do feel if we were to follow his prescription, at least we could have a conversation about it without talking as though the other person were evil and badly motivated. Um, I've got some, you know, there are some technical things I would have said about the trans rights thing. I mean, the, just from the point of view, there is no such thing as trans rights any more than there are black rights. There are human rights that apply to all sorts of people and, uh, and are more meaningful for some groups of people than for other groups of people. But I, you know, where if we start from the point of view that there's some people who've got this specific right, and there's some people over there have got that specific what right, and they've got to go to war. We've already lost. So I do think, but I do really welcome the way in which in answer, and in a way, that's the answer to the questioner. Most of politics is not really about what is right and what is wrong. If it was clear what is right and what is wrong, we would not need politics. We just do most of us the right thing. Most of politics and most of public policy is generally about a choice. And the choice is usually between bad and worse options. That's why we need politics. Um, and, but in order to, first of all, identify what the options are, and then to have a proper conversation about what is bad and what is worse, we need to be civil, we need to be generous, we need to be open, and we need to accept that the fact that somebody may not see things the way we do is a product of their experience. It's a product of the particular aspirations and ambitions that they have, and they may want to choose differently. That doesn't make them a bad person. And if we could just all agree with that, then we could get somewhere. Thank you, Trevor. And Ian, your last words about, you know, what would be the one change of policy which would have the biggest impact? Take that question any way you'd like. Well, Look, I, I'm I'm not 
the kind of person that reaches for government intervention on everything. Um, but I think we've we we've teased out quite a lot in this conversation, Karina, which is, um, you know, we talk about resilience. We we, we we've talked about uh, how people can get access to real information as opposed to propaganda. We've talked about as you know, as just Trevor was saying, a a a more respectful conversation, which is something that I'm absolutely into um, and, and not into a shouting and screaming match. So if we're, if we're really wanting to pull the policy handle, it maybe is, you know, education, education, education. And, 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 and you know, when people's worldviews, when people's opportunities are forming, um, or those opportunities actually are not forming for so many people, that it's at you know it's it's at that point where policy um, can make a difference. It's essentially about great education, about about free speech, uh, about an inquiring mind, about the ability to um, see see um, the path in life that you can take and being uh, and allowing people to actually be able to choose a path. So I, I think I said it. I said it up front, which is, um, you know, when we talk about diversity, um, equity uh, and inclusion, sometimes we don't also talk about the necessary piece around social mobility at the same time. And I think that for me is where policy needs to lock together. I think we did some of this stuff better a few years ago than, than we do it now as a result of digital but for me, it's the it's the education lever I would pull. Thank you both. Um, absolutely fascinating. And it's about the tone, isn't it? It's about keeping a respectful tone. I was listening to um, Stevie Wonder yesterday morning, and he has got the best line. I'm going to quote it, and I think it's a good way to end. His song is, try to see it my way. We can work it out. And actually, that's all we need to do. See it somebody else's way, respect it. One doesn't have to agree, but in the end, we can work it out. So thank you both, Ian Anderson, Trevor Phillips. Thank you for a fascinating conversation. We could have gone on for rather a lot longer, but I know that Trevor's got other things to do and Ian's got a train to Washington. So thank you both and goodbye from the Inclusion Initiative at the London School of Economics. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.